ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson. The question for today's ID the Future episode might be, what on earth are we doing here? The talk we'll hear, given by Casey Luskin at the May 2022 Dallas Conference on Science and Faith, was actually titled, The Good Earth, Insights from Geology on the Design of Our Planet for Life. You'll notice, though, that throughout this talk, as Dr. Luskin describes what science knows about our spectacularly life-friendly Earth, he keeps using words like, it's a mystery, we don't know, very difficult to explain. And even a good smattering of, this shouldn't have happened, meaning that, well, you'll hear him tell the story. Casey Luskin holds a Ph.D. in geology from the University of Johannesburg, specializing in paleomagnetism and plate tectonics. He's conducted geological research at the Scripps Institution for Oceanography, and besides his work as a practicing scientist, he's the associate director of the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute and co-editor of the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, published in 2021. Today's episode is part one of two from his talk in Dallas, with more to come soon. What on earth could geology tell us about intelligent design? It can tell us if we live on a special planet, or if Carl Sagan was right when he said that we are just sort of a, a humdrum star lost in some forgotten galaxy in the middle of the universe, and there's nothing special about where we live. So I think that geology can tell us a lot about whether Earth is in fact a privileged planet. Okay, well, it's so great to be with you all here today. Uh, thank you for sticking around till the very end. Because I'm the last talk, that means I have no deadline I have to meet. There's no one after me. So I have a captive audience. You're here as long as I want to take. No, I, I'll try to keep to time, um, even though uh, I do want to try to get through a lot of material. And uh, appreciate you guys staying till the end. I was looking forward to coming out to the Dallas conference last year before the snowpocalypse happened. And we had to give it online. So it's great to be with you all in person. So the title of my talk is The Good Earth, Insights from Geology on the Design of Our Planet for Life. And to quote a very important person, you've heard it said that there is design arguments in biology and also in physics and cosmology. But I say to you, we can also make design arguments in geology. Why can't we make design arguments in geology? But what on earth could geology tell us about intelligent design? Well, for one, it can tell us what geological features are necessary to make a habitable planet. It can tell us if we live on a special planet, or if Carl Sagan was right when he said that we are just sort of a, a humdrum star lost in some forgotten galaxy in the middle of the universe, and there's nothing special about where we live. So I think that geology can tell us a lot about whether Earth is, in fact, a privileged planet. In sci-fi terms, we may, I'm a big sci-fi fanatic, and I'll give some sci-fi references in this talk, but we might ask the question, what is required to terraform a planet? Terraforming is when you take a dead planet, if you think back to the old Star Trek movies and they were terraforming, you take a dead planet and then you turn it into a planet that is habitable for life. So if we were future uh, explorers of space and we were gonna do this, what would it take to terraform a dead planet and turn it into a living one? And I think that this had to be done to Earth to make Earth a habitable planet for us. And in fact, Earth has numerous special properties that are necessary for advanced life and certainly properties that we don't find anywhere else in our solar system. So let's examine just a few in this talk, starting with Earth's magnetic field. 
So as uh, John West said, my PhD was in paleomagnetism in South Africa. So I did do quite a bit of studying of Earth's magnetic field during my PhD. And before we launch into this, let's just take a review. If you guys took, have taken any geology, a very basic review of the chemical structural divisions of the Earth, okay? So the thinnest layer of the Earth is the crust. We're on the crust right now, and it's about 25 miles thick. Below us is the mantle, and it's about 1,800 miles thick. Um, and if you go down to the core mantle boundary, oh, you can't, can you see that there? The core mantle boundary is about 4,000 degrees, okay? Uh, that's uh, in, in Celsius. So uh, the liquid outer core comes next. That's about 1,375 miles thick, and its temperature is about 4,400 degrees Celsius. And then finally, we have the solid inner core with a radius of 750 miles and a temperature of about 5,500 degrees Celsius. So you can see that as you go from the center of the Earth to the outside, it gets very, it's very hot in the center, and it's very, um, it's very, very not a, not a hospitable place for life, but it gets cooler as you get to the surface. That's going to be very important for some of the things we're going to talk about today. So where is the Earth's magnetic field generated? The Earth's magnetic field is generated in the outer core. And how is it generated? Well, we don't know for sure. We can, obviously, we can't go to the outer core, but the outer core is made of liquid iron, as opposed to the inner core, which is made of sort of a solid uh, iron-nickel alloy. Um, and the outer core, because it is liquid, it, there are currents of liquid metal iron and nickel in the outer core that are driven by the Earth's Coriolis force, driven by different rates at which the Earth is spinning at different radii, um, as well as by convection due to temperature differences between the inner core and the outer core and the lower mantle. So these uh, forces, the Coriolis force, and these temperature differences are causing convection currents of this liquid metal iron nickel. But because the liquid iron and metal and, uh, and nickel metal carries an electric charge, these rotating currents of, of liquid metal generate an electric current. And of course, a moving charge or current generates a magnetic field. So that is how it is thought that Earth's magnetic field is generated in the liquid outer core of the Earth. So why is the magnetic field vital for life? Why does this even matter? Well, there are two major reasons why the magnetic field is vital for life. First of all, Earth's magnetic field acts like a deflector shield. Like in Star Trek, you're deflecting uh, space rays and phasers that are going to hit your ship. In the same way, Earth's magnetic field acts like a deflector shield that deflects uh, uh, the solar wind. That, prote that protects our atmosphere from being stripped off by the solar wind, and it also deflects much harmful radiation in the form of sol solar particles, the solar wind, and also galactic cosmic rays from hitting the Earth's surface where it can damage DNA and life forms. So the, so the magnetic field protects our atmosphere from being stripped off by the solar wind, and it protects life on Earth from being damaged by harmful radiation. And this diagram shows it really nicely. You've got solar wind, which is coming, and when it hits the Earth's magnetic field, it's deflected around it. Actually, what really happens is these charged particles follow magnetic field lines, and many of them will get captured along these field lines, and they will follow the field lines to the poles, where the magnetic field lines intersect with the surface of the Earth. And that's why you get the aurora borealis, and you get the northern lights. Also, you get the same thing in the southern hemisphere. It's because you have these charged particles that are coming through the atmosphere, following the field lines, and they only will show up at the poles. But because there's not really any life at the poles, it's not that big a deal if there's more radiation there. Um, there's not anything living at the North Pole, on the surface at least, or at the South Pole. 
Um, and so the Earth's magnetic field serves as a deflector shield in this manner. So Earth's magnetic field is vital for life. Fine. I think that's very clear. That's very well agreed. But is Earth special in having a strong magnetic field? I think the answer is yes. I went through all the strengths and magnetic fields of the planets uh, in our solar system. And this, I actually made this chart back when Pluto was still considered a planet. I decided not to take it off just for fun. I know Steve Meyer said he wasn't going to get into that debate. I won't either, but we'll just leave it on here for fun. So uh, Earth's magnetic field is fairly strong. In fact, these are all the planets in our solar system that have a, a relatively strong magnetic field that is strong enough to shield a planet from solar radiation and also galactic cosmic rays. So you can see Earth is not unique in having a strong magnetic field. Uh, but there are different types of planets. We need to understand that. We have the rocky planets, or terrestrial planets, which are found in the inner solar system. These are planets made of silicate rock. And they have nice, stable surfaces, which can serve as platforms where living organisms can exist. Then we have the outer planets, which are the gas giants. These planets are not habitable because they have very high heat and high pressure. They have atmospheric turbulence, yielding chaotic and high entropy environments. Oh yeah, also there's nowhere to stand. So that is a little bit of a problem if you want to have a nice platform where life can exist. So it's, it's thought, generally speaking, when we're looking at astrobiology, that gas giants are not going to be a good place to find living organisms, and terrestrial planets are where you're going to find them. So these are the planets that do have strong magnetic fields. Um, all the gas giants do. But Earth is the only terrestrial or rocky planet that has one. So if you plot out the planetary diameter versus the strength of magnetic field, you can see the Earth is very unique in that it has a small, it's the only planet with a small diameter and yet a strong magnetic field. So is it rare to have a strong magnetic field in our solar system? No, I would say it isn't. Um, however, Earth is the only terrestrial planet with a strong magnetic field that can shield life from harmful radiation. So in that respect, Earth is certainly special. So let's talk now about a second uh, aspect of Earth, which I think makes it very special and it's very important for life, and that is plate tectonics. I'm a big fan of plate tectonics. I studied it in my PhD, but I was surprised in studying plate tectonics during my PhD. I never really learned about why it is so important for life. I had to read um, some other books that were sort of outside the scope of my studies to appreciate this. So here's why plate tectonics is important for life. Life in the oceans requires certain key elements like carbon, calcium, sulfur, phosphorus, nitrogen, and many others in order to survive. But these nutrients are constantly being depleted out of the oceans. Okay, so every second of every year, every day of every year, plankton and other marine organisms in the ocean are dying. They're falling down through the water column and being deposited and buried in the sediment at the ocean bottom. This creates a constant stream of calcium carbonate and other vital comp compounds and elements that are in these living organisms raining down to the ocean bottom where these crucial elements are locked up in the sediment, effectively depleting the ocean. Okay, so it's, it's kind of like this. Over time, you get all these crucial elements for life that are falling out of the water column and getting deposited in the ocean sediments. And eventually, these elements will be depleted from the oceans. Okay, there will be none of these elements left in the oceans. So, and, and if things are eroding from the continents into the oceans, the continents will also be depleted. So how do we resolve this paradox? Well, Michael Denton, if you've read uh, some of his wonderful books, he has the book, The Wonder of Water, where he resolves this paradox. He says, the tectonic recycling of oceanic and continental crust holds the key. Balance against the continu continual and massive loss of minerals to the seabed 
Tectonic recycling replenishes the oceans with, with continental runoff and by the reaction of water with upwelling magma at the mid-ocean ridges. So plate tectonics is what replenishes these important uh, elements and compounds into the biosphere. Let me give you guys a diagram to help explain how this happens. Okay, so here in this diagram, we have shelled organisms and other organisms that are dying with all these important nutrients needed for life, taking them down and getting buried in the ocean sediment. And what happens next? That sediment is then buried at the top of the, of the subducting crustal slab, where it is subducted down deep into the earth, where it then melts. So these sediments are then melting deep in the earth, and as those sediments are melting, all those compounds that were locked up in the organisms of life, they then return to the surface. As the magma raises through the, through the crust, comes back up, and then that magma is then expelled through volcanoes. And what comes out of volcanoes are the same elements and compounds that were locked up in the sediments that life needs. And as these uh, vital nutrients are then expelled into the atmosphere and then also uh, erupted into magma, they are then eroded back into the oceans, or uh, if they go into the atmosphere, it's then absorbed back into the oceans. So you have literally a recycling program on the Earth. And this is really cool, you guys. I'm from Seattle, where if we don't recycle, they, they send us a, a penalty bill. So I'm really into recycling, whether, no, I, I do like recycling, but if I didn't, I wouldn't say. Um, uh, <laughs> Actually, I will say this. I was in Texas last year, and somebody, for the first time, I never heard this solution, they said, they, they told me this expression, how do you deal with pollution in Texas? They said that the solution to pollution is dilution. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you could never say that in C Seattle. You'd be thrown out of the city. But okay, let's get back to this here. Um, and I do like recycling, by the way. I'm not, I'm not just saying that. So um, in this recycling program, you have the, these uh, key crucial elements that are uh, locked up in the ocean crust, they're then subducted, they come back up, expelled into the atmosphere and into magma where they erode and they go back into the ocean. So we have this wonderful recycling program. Carbon, sulfur, nitrogen, uh, water, calcium, phosphorus are all recycled and the oceans are not depleted of these crucial elements needed for life. Uh, the book Rare Earth by Donald Brownlee and Peter War said plate tectonics plays at least three crucial roles in maintaining animal life. It promotes biological productivity. It promotes diversity, which is a hedge against mass distinction. And it helps maintain equable temperatures, a necessary requirement for animal life. We'll get to that one later. It may be that plate tectonics is the central requirement for life on a planet, and that it is necessary for keeping a world supplied with water. So very important plate tectonics for life. So how many planets in our solar system have plate tectonics? Anyone want to guess? Hold up a finger. One, as far as we know, and as far as from our studies of other planets goes, Earth is the only planet that is known to have plate tectonics. Earth is definitely special. Okay, so let's now talk about liquid water, but not just liquid water, but just water in general. Why is Earth special in having water, and especially liquid water? Some of this is going to go, you think you know where this is going, and some of this is going to go where you think you know where it's going, and some of it probably isn't going where you think it's going. So. <laughs> Planetary scientists have identified four requirements for a planet to have a liquid water supply large enough to sustain advanced life, okay? First, the planet had to capture enough water during the formation of the solar system to make a large ocean. Second, the water had to migrate from the planet's interior to the surface. Third, the water cannot be lost into space during that planet's history. And then fourth, that water has to exist as a liquid. So the fourth one is probably the criterion you're most familiar with. And that is what we call the circumstellar habitable zone. The idea that if you look around the sun, 
there's a, there's a band where there's enough radiation being received by a planet to make sure that the, the water on that planet will not be frozen in an ice form like it is in the, in the outer gas giants, but it's also not going to be vaporized into a gas like it would be on Mercury or Venus if those planets had water. So the circumstellar habitable zone is sort of that, that Goldilocks zone where the temperatures are just right to get liquid water. And it's thought that both Earth and Mars are in this circumstellar habitable zone. So this satisfies liquid water, criterion four. But what about criterion one, getting water in the first place? It's surprising how difficult it's been for planetary scientists to explain how Earth got water. Water is obviously vital for life, yet explaining how Earth came to have so much water has proven tricky for planetary geologists. Um, in fact, this book, How to Build a Habitable Planet, says this. The Earth is about one half of 1% by weight water. The factors that led to this particular capture efficiency, meaning how did Earth get its water, are not understood. Based on the observation that Earth is depleted in potassium and other moderately volatile elements, those are light elements that tend to prefer a gaseous form at a, at a low temperature, our planet would not be expected to have any water. Somehow Earth got just about an ideal amount of water to support life. And it's not clear how this happened according to our standard models of how the solar system formed. And as I learned in school, the, the, the main model for the way planetary scientists think our solar system formed is called the nebular hypothesis. So if we just take this, this uh, model for the sake of the argument and say, what does this model say about how the Earth formed? Well, according to this hypothesis, the solar system began as a giant nebula composed of dust, rock, gas, ice, and other debris. Gravity then coalesced a, huge amount, coalesced a huge amount of mass at the center, and as the mass contracted, it began to spin, heat up, and flatten into a disk. And as this process continued, eventually enough mass accreted at the center to produce pressure, which caused fusion in that huge mass at the center, and the sun was born. And that's how it's thought that, that stars form in general, and our sun was first formed through this accretion of mass at the center of the solar system. So around the, this uh, disk, the leftover chunks of rock and dirt and gas and dust are thought to have then begun to accrete into protoplanets. And near the protosun, sort of at the very center of the solar system, the denser and heavier material with higher melting points coalesced into smaller, rocky terrestrial planets. However, further from the protosun, the lighter elements and compounds, such as water in the form of ice, also hydrogen and helium and methane, congregated to form the gas giant planets. And so if we take the nebular hypothesis, just for the sake of the argument, you know, what do mainstream scientists say about this, then lighter elements and volatile compounds like water should not have condensed in the inner, inner rocky planets. Earth should not have this much water. And the way this is described in uh, planetary geology is through a concept called the frost line or the snow line. And you're only going to get water condensing into a form that can be accreted into a, a planet beyond this frost or snow line, but Earth is inside the frost snow line. So we shouldn't have water here. In fact, a paper in the journal eLife uh, says that a very important concept is the snow or frost line, beyond which volatiles, mostly water, condensed and remained in the solid state as ices. In the early solar system, the snow line was just between the, the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. Jupiter formed just beyond the snow line, where the surface density of solids, mostly ices, was greatest, while the terrestrial planets formed within the snow line. And this article is, of course, by a name that some of you might recognize, Guillermo Gonzalez, who's publishing an article about 
habitable planet. So who says that ID theorists don't publish peer-reviewed papers in mainstream journals on relevant topics? Of course we do, of course we do. And um, this is one of those papers. So uh, this concept of the frost line, uh, again, beyond the frost line, you can get ice and, and water uh, condensing into the planets, but inside of it, you're not going to get any non-gaseous H2O. So we don't have uh, water being locked up as the Earth is forming. And Guillermo Gonzalez, who wrote the book, co-wrote the book Privileged Planet, by the way, uh, which gets into some of these topics, I highly recommend it. Um, he says that the Earth formed in a region of the early solar system that was very dry. Yet Earth's water content today is, assume, is estimated to be significantly greater than its formation at one astronomical unit would imply. The leading theories for the origin of the Earth's water and other volatiles involve their delivery to Earth from more volatile rich regions of the solar system. Water delivery to Earth from comets, once a popular idea, can only account for about 10% of its crustal water inventory. I, I can vouch for this. I learned about the idea that water was delivered to the Earth on comets when I was studying geology as an undergraduate, and it's now known that, yes, there probably could have been water delivered to Earth by, from comets, and comets had formed far out in the solar system where water could condense as ice, but it's only going to be a small percentage of the water content that Earth has, and certainly not enough to sustain life, okay? So uh, another article in the journal Science sort of confirms what we're saying here, that uh, Earth, according to models of solar system formation, Earth as an inner solar system planet should have little to no water. Early models of planetary formation predicted that the nebular gas near our young sun was too hot to form ice. Water as vapor, therefore, cannot have easily incorporated into the planet, into the materials that form the inner rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, okay? So do we have a potential solution to the water mystery of where did Earth's water come from? Well, last year, I'm sorry, two years ago, uh, in 2020, an article was published in the journal Science, which said, proposed this hypothesis that Earth may have been or water may have been delivered to Earth on ensatite chondrite meteorites that are thought to represent sort of the, the bulk composition of the inner solar system at the time the solar system formed. And this paper says that the origin of Earth's water is debated. The isotopic composition of Earth suggests that it is composed of material from the inner solar system, such as ensatite chondrite meteorites. The inner solar system was too warmed to have retained water ice. So terrestrial water is thought to have been supplied by hydrated materials that formed in the outer solar system before migrating inward. But they think that these meteorites, which they studied, ensatite meteorites, um, which are thought to represent the constitution of the inner solar system, that these meteorites had enough um, water to explain how Earth might have obtained its water. But the problem is we're actually not talking about water here, we're talking about just hydrogen. Um, unlike comets, this is an article from astronomy.com, unlike comets, asteroids don't lock up water as ice. Instead, they trap its components, hydrogen and oxygen, inside min minerals. Really, we're not talking about water, we're talking about hydrogen. Okay, but fine, at least we're getting the components of water, maybe that's enough. So there's still an outstanding mystery here. Um, if ensatite meteorites formed in the inner solar system, like this paper is saying, we still have not explained how the components of water, the hydrogen and the oxygen, condensed into a solid form in the meteorite so close to the sun. So if these meteorites really did form in the inner solar system, that's fine. We see that they seem to have a lot of hydrogen. It's difficult to account for that. But how did these, um, how did these meteorites end up having so much hydrogen so close to the sun? It's very difficult to explain that. And I'll use an analogy to explain what I'm trying to convey to you. Let's say that you go home 
and you find that your house is full of gold. And you think, oh my gosh, this is so great. There's all these gold bars in my house. How did my house come to have all these gold bars? And then a delivery truck shows up full of gold bars. And you say, oh, okay, it makes perfect sense now. Trucks are delivering gold to my house. Okay, well, fine. <laughs> but how did the gold get onto the trucks? And why are these trucks delivering gold to your house? You've just pushed the origin of the gold back. In the same way saying that ensotite meteorites, which formed in the inner solar system, carried the water to Earth, really does not explain the origin of Earth's water because we don't have a good model for explaining how meteorites like ensotite chondrites that formed in the inner solar system got the water to begin with. It really has not explained uh, where the water came from. It's not offered sort of a complete explanation. So I think that this is an outstanding mystery. Maybe planetary geologists will solve this mystery as to where um, Earth's water came from, but I think it has not yet been explained. Um, but it's not just enough to explain how a planet gets its water, you also have to account for a planet not losing its water throughout its history. That's the third criterion that we talked about. So having water initially is not enough to make a planet habitable. You also have to show that a planet will not lose its water over time. And that's criterion three listed earlier. And Earth is special because unlike Mars and Venus, which are very similar to Earth in many other respects, it has retained its water. So why has Earth retained its water and not lost it over time? Well, let's talk about Venus. It turns out that Venus has a very strong electric field, which is about 10 times stronger than Earth's electric field. And the theory is that this electric field has actually pushed oxygen ions to the upper atmosphere where they were lost into space. So Earth does not have a strong electric field, and this phenomenon which happened on Venus caused Venus to lose its water. Venus is incredibly hot, but it's incredibly dry. It's got all these greenhouse gases, but it's not moist. It's extremely dry on Venus, and it's not a place for life to exist. So uh, to uh, quote uh, Stranger Things, uh, you can't spell America without Erica. You can't have H2O without O. I don't know if any of you are Stranger Things fans. So uh, if you lose all your oxygen, you're not going to have water on your planet. I got really into Stranger Things during my PhD. It was the only thing that helped me write my thesis. So, uh, <laughs> so what happened to Mars's water? What about Mars? Mars may still have small amounts of water. It's, that's still being debated, and it may turn out that, that Mars did have a lot of water in the past, and it may still have some water, but most of what water it had has been lost, and what remains is, is largely not liquid. And there are multiple possible explanations. These include low pressure and temperature prohibit liquid water Either from being fro it's either going to be frozen or it's going to be gaseous. And the gaseous water was probably driven by dust storms into the upper atmosphere. And the low atmospheric pressure on Mars, there's almost no atmosphere, caused the gaseous H2O to be lost into space. It's also possible that some H2O was incorporated and buried into minerals in the ground. Okay, so that's a, 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 proposal, a set of proposals as to why Mars has lost its water. So how many terrestrial planets today have large amounts of water? We want to hold their fingers. One, that's right, only Earth. So how many potentially habitable planets have large amounts of water? Again, the answer is one, because yes, there is water in the gas giant planets, but for reasons we discussed earlier, they're not considered to be options as habitable planets. So Earth is very special in being a rocky terrestrial planet um, and having large amounts of water. And in fact, it still remains to be explained why Earth has so much water. That was Casey Luskin speaking on The Good Earth, insights from geology on the design of our planet for life. Stay tuned for more to come, as this was just part one of two that we'll be presenting from this talk, and there's some pretty interesting Q&A yet to come, by the way. So you'll want to return for that, but 
Before you go today, would you take a moment, please, and give ID the Future a five-star rating on your podcast platform of choice? It really helps, and we really do appreciate you. For ID the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.